Father, we are truly grateful that you have put hope in our hearts through your Son, Jesus, and the presence of your Spirit. And as we approach your word this morning, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to have a renewed sense of godly expectation, not simply in this Advent season, whatever that means for each one of us individually or as families, but as we move through every season of our lives. May we trust in your grace and your goodness. May we trust in the work of your son, Jesus, and the presence of your spirit to empower us to live wisely and faithfully each moment of every day. We're thankful for all you've done, all you are doing, and all you will do. In Jesus' name I pray. So good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm thankful for the chance to uh, open the text this morning. There was a, a bit of a joke that kind of rose up in our home over the last week as I was uh, preparing for the sermon. My family, my kids have nicknamed Pastor John, uh, Pastor Hilarious. Uh, so uh, yes, thanks, John, thanks for that. But uh, there was kind of a question, who's gonna be teaching this week? Well, Dad's gonna be teaching. Uh, and it's not going to be Pastor Hilarious. They came to the conclusion it was going to be Dr. Sirius. Uh, so um, it will be a slight change of pace for everyone just, just preparing you for that. Um, not as cool as John. Um, but still very thankful to be here um, talking through a text with you this morning. Uh, the title of the sermon this morning, uh, I put it pretty simply, Embracing Hope at the King's Table. Uh, the text we'll be working through today is Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 38. You can go ahead and turn there uh, or scroll there, whatever that means to you. And the big idea that we'll be kicking around and examining uh, from different angles through that text is this. Hope does not remove our expectations. It redefines them by and reorients them to God and his ways. Hope does not remove our expectations. It redefines them by and reorients them to God and his ways. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Hobbit, and several other classic works of literature, may be known to most of us as a gifted writer and imaginative storyteller. Yet he wasn't actually a novelist by profession. He was actually a comparative philologist. Does anybody know what that means? Okay, yeah, good. Uh, I didn't really either. So kind of know what philology is, the study of language, right? But uh, here's a bit of a definition for what he did. Comparative philology is the study of languages, specifically the relationships between languages, including the historical development of languages over time. So Tolkien's career and earliest academic work was an examination of ancient Celtic and British mythologies with particular interest uh, in uncovering the meaning of obscure or difficult words or terms in these mythologies. Now, that probably sounds pretty uninteresting uh, to many of us, maybe all of us, but this discipline, comparative philology, actually uh, shaped the ways Tolkien wrote his stories and created his worlds and would help you and I access some deeper meaning behind his work. One particular illustration that's useful this morning of just how Tolkien's training deepens the significance of reading and understanding his stories is his use of the word hope in Lord of the Rings. 
Because while we read the English words, or whatever, I guess, language you might be reading the Lord of the Rings in, I read it in English, um, we need to remember he wrote these characters actually speaking and interacting in other languages native to the worlds he created and not in English. Surprise. With this backdrop, Tolkien actually created two words for hope in the elven language he created himself for Lord of the Rings. The first word for hope he defined this way, an expectation of the good based upon what was known and seen, even if not yet fully realized. The second word for hope he defined as a trust undefeated in the face of every indication things won't go well because of a deep connection the speaker maintains to the creator, God. Tolkien himself, when he talked about these two terms, actually believed the second, the latter term for hope, to be the more mature, stable kind of hope because it wasn't distracted by or derailed by or dependent upon circumstances, but was rooted in an enduring commitment to the good regardless of outcomes. While Tolkien's categories aren't perfect for sure, uh, they do raise an important point this morning and offer some reflection for us. Simply this, what kind of hope do you, do I have? In biblical terms, does our hope rest on our ability to discern and see what good might come from our circumstances? Or does our hope rest on a relationship with a being who is all good and all powerful all of the time? Now, that may seem maybe overly nuanced to you, or we could have a conversation about circumstances and the story of your life, that's fine. Um, but consider this. When we base our hope on what we see or discern, there's actually always a risk that we'll build our hope on our seeing and our discerning, rather than a hope in a person who often defies or contradicts our seeing and discerning. In short, Tolkien's distinctions draw out our tendency to construct a hope built on our abilities or our circumstances or our own expectations for our own life, rather than a deeper connection to God himself. The Advent season and our reflection this morning and throughout the next few weeks on the Eucharist actually offers a timely opportunity to evaluate and revise our own expectations, the source and shape of our own hope. So this morning, I'll be working in twos. You'll probably sense that over the next few minutes. Tolkien started us off with two words for hope. Our text is in Luke chapter 2, where we'll discover two exemplars of hope, Simeon and Anna. I actually have two very simple points, and they're these. Hope expects God to keep his promises, one. And two, hope expects a life of costly obedience. And our time this morning will actually end with two disciples on the road to Emmaus, where their hope is redefined and reoriented to Jesus, by Jesus, and in a recapitulation of the Last Supper. Uh, so frankly, that's the Cliff's Notes version, so if you uh, have somewhere you need to be, you can probably just uh, get there. But uh, we'll spend some time digging a bit deeper into that uh, kind of overview there. So let's begin. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2, maybe you're already there, uh, to give you a a bit of context, though, before we jump into the specific text I'm using, because I'm not going to read the full chapters. Uh, Simeon and Anna's hopeful responses actually take place within a larger story, right, of the promised birth of Jesus. This happens in, in Luke chapter 1, and then Jesus' birth takes, takes place in the first part of Luke chapter 2, and then where we find ourselves today, or this morning, is in the presentation of Jesus at the temple, 
there in the middle, the meat of Luke chapter 2. Simeon and Anna come after the birth of Jesus during his presentation in the temple uh, in obedience to the Old Testament requirements for a newborn. In fact, Simeon and Anna, and we'll revisit this again, actually serve as the two witnesses demanded by Old Testament law needed to validate an event. So they're important players in this story. With this backdrop, follow along then as I read uh, all the verses this morning. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 25 and getting down through verse 38. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. So Simeon comes first in the text, and Simeon's response uh, calls on our need to define our expectations by God's faithfulness and orient our lives around his redemptive purposes. The simplest way to describe the shape of Simeon's hope is a hope expecting God to keep his word. Or as I put it more generally, hope expects God to keep his promises. Hope expects God to keep his promises. Simeon expects God to keep his promises because Simeon's hope is defined by God's faithfulness and oriented to his redemptive purposes. We see this first in the ways Simeon is described. He's given a very lengthy character reference, likely establishing his credibility as a witness to Jesus' dedication of the temple, as well as helping us understand how he responded as he did. He's described as devout and righteous, terms reminiscent of Old Testament descriptions of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as well as Job. He's waiting for the consolation or comforting of Israel, a concept explored by the Psalms and the prophets. The Spirit is on him. Again, this is language reflecting the descriptions of King David. We just finished up a study on him and other kings, as well as the prophets. And he had received a promise from God that he would see the Messiah before he died. So taken together, then, this hopeful response should almost be expected. His knowledge of the Messiah's coming wasn't a sudden thing, it seems like. It wasn't kind of an undisclosed revelation like Anna's experience we'll learn about in a few moments. Rather, he's not only been given all the context he needs to build a godly expectation for his own life, he's actually told directly where to go, when, and under what set of circumstances. And then he would see the Messiah with his own eyes. 
He'd set his eyes on the promised fulfillment of all God's promises. Listen again to his first recorded words here in 29 through 32. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon clearly speaks of God's covenant faithfulness, a repeated theme in Old Testament writing. Simeon himself actually serves as a kind of representative for all of Israel, an expression of the kind of God-oriented, promised-shaped catharsis he waited for individually and Israel waited for corporately. And just as God was now keeping his promises to Israel, so God kept his promise to Simeon. Simeon's words actually echo pretty closely the words of Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Simeon sees and declares that God has been faithful, sovereign Lord, as you have promised. And in this place of trust in God's faithfulness, Simeon finds peace. You may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon has constructed a deep personal sense of meaning, a godly expectation from God's faithfulness to him individually, seen in verse 29, and corporately for all of God's people from all the nations, seen in verses 31 and 32. In this way, Simeon's hope is oriented to something much greater and grander than his own single story. He's oriented towards God's redemptive purposes for all the world, God's kingdom alone. Yet he's also pretty clear-eyed about the cost of redemption. Simeon's final words to Mary and Joseph in verses 34 through 35 actually foreshadow the ways Jesus will divide Israel uh, and various peoples that respond to his ministry differently and even bring heartache directly and individually into Mary and Joseph's life. And expecting God to keep his promises actually doesn't make life painless and easy, but it does offer an abiding hope that's rooted in God alone that can carry each of us through seasons of pain and ease. Ultimately, Simeon responds with a powerful expression of the faithful redemption offered by God, not simply to Israel, but to all the nations. He hopes in God's faithfulness. He expects God to keep his word. He hopes in God's redemptive purposes. Simeon's not provincial or pretentious, but he embodies the kingdom of priest motif from Isaiah 61, God's intent for his people Israel among all the other nations. In this way, he embodies the faithfulness every saint, every saint should present to a watching and redemption-starved world. And in all these ways, he also stands in contrast to the failure of hope seen again and again in the religious elites throughout the rest of the Gospels, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the like. Where Simeon hears, understands, remembers, and holds fast to God's promises, the religious elites reject, they twist, they forget, they turn away from the message of the kingdom displayed and preached by Jesus. Where Simeon exudes a kind of spiritual maturity and a clear commitment to a faithful God as he's revealed himself to be, the religious elites expect a Messiah of their own making and in their own image. 
Consider this. The groups with the same or even superior access as Simeon to the promises of God held in the Old Testament actually habitually displayed a horrifying and baffling misunderstanding of who and what Jesus was. While there are many examples that I could offer throughout the Gospels, I'll offer one here. Actually, it's an Advent example in the spirit of the sermon series uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, Do you remember the Magi's visit from Matthew's Advent account in Matthew chapter 1? Recall that the Magi, as they're searching, again, following the star, searching for this promised Messiah, they seek out Herod first, right? Uh, They need to discern where this newborn king could be found. They consider maybe Herod in the palace that. Herod didn't know, so what did he do? He consulted the religious elites. It actually says the chief priests and teachers of the law in that passage. And did they know where the Messiah should be born? Yes. Yes, they did. And did they go and worship and honor him? No. No, they didn't. Over and over and over again, the religious elites showed they wanted a political force to liberate Israel, offer them security and safety, or they wanted a religious zealot to defend their legalism and validate their spiritual authority, or they wanted justification for the systems and structures that benefited them, but they had all the wrong expectations. In this way, Simeon is a kind of anti-religious elite. He's everything all the religious He's everything all the religious leaders could have, should have been, but weren't. And just like the religious leaders knew the promises of God, but unlike the religious elites, he exemplifies a hopeful way of life, a life defined by God's faithfulness and oriented to his redemptive purposes. Simeon had received a promise from God that defined his existence likely from the moment he received it. That's kind of the indication in the text. But it's unclear when or even how long he had to wait for this promise to be received and fulfilled. It seems like a single, unrepeated promise. It could have been days, weeks, years. There's a sense in the text, if you read through it, it's a long time, but it's not explicit. And nevertheless, then, thinking through that way, uh, there's much to learn through uh, Simeon's patience. We, too have received many great and precious promises from God throughout scripture. Psalm 136, God's love endures forever. Second Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. First John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yet, Are we more like Simeon, speaking of and living by God's faithfulness and redemptive story? Or are we more like the religious elites, quite knowledgeable of the things of God, yet without a living faith? Or quite committed to our version of God, uh, as long as he behaves? Or flat out committed to a false God? morally malformed, expecting a Jesus of our own making, either culturally or politically, socially, the list goes on. Do you, or I, eagerly anticipate the fulfillment of all God's promises in such a way that it actually makes a difference in our lives? Our choices, our conversations, our commitments, our habits, our relationships, our disposition, or Do you, do I, do we need our expectations reset, redefined, and reoriented?
The challenge from Simeon then is to look to God's faithfulness. Hear God's voice in Simeon's words, echoing the voice of Isaiah, drawing meaning and purpose from God's redemptive plans. So Simeon has godly expectations. He first, that's the first point this morning. He expects God to keep his promises. His hope is defined by God's faithfulness and oriented to his redemptive purposes. We have a second, though, exemplar this morning. Moving down just a few verses from Simeon, we encounter Anna. And while she occupies only a couple of verses, she still offers a second example of godly expectations. And she points to a hope that expects a life of costly obedience. So my second point this morning is this. Two, hope expects a life of costly obedience. Hope expects a life of costly obedience. Listen again to Luke 2, verses 36 through 38. There was a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Unlike Simeon, Anna actually doesn't speak for herself in this text. Her words and responses are recorded for the reader in third person. We have descriptions about her. We also only have a few details that seem scattered, um, but yet we pay attention to the details because we then need to consider why these specific details may be warranted mentioning in the text. So there are these. Anna's a prophetess, a spiritual authority, and a voice of God to the people. She's the child of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. Penuel means the face of God, already hinting at Anna's destiny to behold the face of God and the baby Jesus. She was married at some point in life, likely early on in her life, as was the cultural custom in this period and place in history. Yet, sadly, she was widowed only seven years into marriage with no mention of children or other family. So she seems to be alone and responds to this change of life path by dedicating herself to spiritual practices, fasting and praying, and to the preeminent spiritual place for the Jew, the temple. Considering then all these things packaged together, it seems Anna's hope or expectation might best be described in this simple way. Anna's hope is defined by dependence on God and oriented to his timing. Anna's hope is defined by dependence on God and oriented to his timing. And this kind of hope expects a life of costly obedience. These verses describe a woman of definitive spiritual credibility, much like Simeon, a woman who personifies a long obedience in every contour of her story, even in ways she actually has no control over. Her name. She shares a name with Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Names matter in scripture, and the connection between the name of the mother of Samuel and the second witness to the presentation of truer and better Samuel, Jesus Christ, provides powerful connections and powerful meaning for us. Both Hannah and Anna exemplify a total dependence on God to intervene in their lives to bring life and hope. Hannah in her prayer for a son, a child, and Anna in her life dedicated to prayer and fasting. Both embody expressions of utter dependence on God's direct intervention, faithfulness, and kindness to them. Her vocation, 
Uh, her prophetic work, she was a prophetess, is done before the face of God, a textual hint from the inclusion of her father's name. <coughs> prophetic words uh, were utterly dependent on God speaking in the actual practice of the gifting and office here. Her loss, the death of her husband, surely an intense loss, led to anastation as a widow, and in this cultural and social moment would have left her vulnerable. She relied on God in the basic circumstances of her life, the basic needs of her life, and in this way actually symbolizes Israel's total dependent, dependence on God for their every need as well. And Anna's dependence on God framed her entire life, empowering her to live a life of costly obedience. Her hope, her expectations were deeply rooted in God alone. And this hope extended to living God's way on God's timing. Or as I put it, Anna's hope is oriented to God's timing. Her entire life was rhythmed after God. Verse 37 describes her fasting and prayer in the temple in a way that defied the ordinary rhythms of day and night. Ordinarily, priests would rotate right in and out of the temple. Remember Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, he was rotating through the temple service. But Anna's rhythms defy that timing. Now, she likely did sleep and eat uh, at some point. Uh, so the text isn't misleading us. But Luke is using a description, some figures of speech here to underscore her absolute commitment to God, his ways, and his work. In many ways, it'd be like you or I saying, I worked all day long. Uh, you know, we don't literally mean we worked 24 hours, although maybe some of you did. But um, we're hyperbolically communicating we invested and worked hard in our day, right? A similar thing then is happening here with Anna. Even her age and her heartaches point to God's timing. One commentator points out that dividing Anna's age, 84, by the length of her marriage prior to her husband's death, seven, which is actually the Hebrew number of perfection, gives you the number 12, the number of tribes in Israel. So similarly to the 12 baskets of extra fish and bread and the feeding of 5,000, Anna's life and even the timing of her losses draw attention to God's perfect provision of the bread of life, the King of Kings, the long-awaited Messiah for his people. Anna's life then is a picture of dependence on God, an expectation that God would reveal himself, a prophet before the face of God, a life lived on God's timing through fasting and prayer, and a life trusting that God is enough, a widow dependent in her temple service. And Anna actually stands in contrast to the failure of hope we see again and again from the disciples of Jesus. If Anna is dependent on God and his timing, uh, if you read the Gospels at all, you learn pretty quickly the disciples often get caught out telling Jesus what he ought to be doing, how he ought to do it, and when he ought to do it. One of the most prominent, exa prominent examples of this failure of hope, this failure of godly expectations, uh, is when Peter chastises Jesus as Jesus is foretelling his suffering and death. Matthew 16, 21 through 23 recounts the story. I'll read it here. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebu rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus, tur Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. 
you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The passage actually, if you read further down past those verses, goes on to describe a life of costly discipleship, a life of sacrifice and death to self. And Peter's response reveals he doesn't share, he doesn't share that expectation. He has a failure of hope. So how does Anna then add to this construction of godly expectations? Well, first, she didn't speak for herself and several contours of her life, probably unknown to her, point to the hope secured only in Christ. And this is often true for us as well, right? Sometimes we don't get to speak for ourselves. Sometimes the shape of our life is clearer to those who speak about us than it is to ourselves. Sometimes we endure uncertainty, suffering, and sadness that we actually may or may not ever make sense of in this momentary existence. Yet, yet, God's goodness remains. He's still dependable, even if you or I live more, it feels like, in the destructive presence of suffering, this costly obedience more so than the restorative rhythms of understanding fully God's reasons for the shape of our lives. In fact, maybe Advent is a season of discomfort and disappointment for you. Maybe it's a relationship or a job or loss or pain, a confusing set of circumstances that just seem to never let up. Pay attention then in this moment to Anna's story and her example of hope. Define your expectations on a dependable, trustworthy God who loves and cares and will provide for you and be with you always. Orient your expectations to living on God's timing and in God's ways. Furthermore, Anna reminds us that we actually sometimes don't get to write every chapter of our lives. Sometimes we feel like passengers in our own story, a life where things seem to happen to us. Yet, how do we, how do you, how do I respond in these chapters, in these moments? Do we still actively trust God? Are we willing to walk with Christ, both in suffering and in triumph? In the face of loss, Anna moved into a life defined by prayer, by fasting, by time in the temple. She became defined by God's means, God's ways, God's timing. Does this describe your life? Using God's means as you move through every season of life? Do you move toward God when things are unclear or do you move away from him? Do I? Do we? Now, this doesn't mean we don't get to speak plainly or aggressively or brashly with God. Thankfully, I'm thankful for this. Uh, the Psalms free us to do this, right? They free us to speak plainly with God. Yet, there is a way to speak plainly with God that doesn't involve speaking disdainfully or disrespectfully of God. And Anna's story reminds us of just how life dedicated to God's timing and God's means of formation and grace can and do shape a kind of durable spiritual maturity, a hopeful life, a life of godly expectations. So taken together then, uh, Simeon and Anna offer portraits of reoriented and reordered expectations. Simeon's hope is defined by God's faithfulness and oriented to his redemptive purposes because hope expects God to keep his promises. Anna's hope is defined by dependence on God and oriented to his timing because hope expects a life of costly obedience. 
I mentioned uh, working in twos this morning, and we've actually spent the bulk of our time with the two exemplars of hope in Luke chapter 2, but there's uh, one more set of two to consider. In fact, ending with Anna's story and its hint at the power of God's means of grace, fasting, and praying provides a fitting hinge for us, a hinge that connects our study today to the larger Advent emphasis over the next few weeks of an invitation to the king's table and clearly underscores the place and the power of another means of grace, the bread and the cup here in front of me, to our formation of godly expectations of hope. Just as two witnesses, Anna and Simeon, testified to Jesus's messianic fulfillment at the beginning of the Gospels, so two disciples testified to his resurrection power and complete the work as a savior and king at the end of the Gospels. Many of us are familiar, maybe, maybe not, with the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus found in Luke 24. I won't read the whole passage. I'll just uh, summarize it to you here for the sake of time. Two disciples are leaving Jerusalem in despair after the death of Jesus, where they at least initially unknowingly encounter the resurrected Jesus. One disciple, Cleopas, responds to Jesus actually with a failure of hope. Luke 24, 19 through 24, recounts more fully all the things he lists, uh, recounts his expectations that Jesus is the prophet and the redeemer of Israel. But uh, Cleopas sees one problem. Jesus is dead. Uh, That really... (laughs) That wasn't in the Messianic playbook, according to Cleopas, right? So Cleopas literally says, we had hoped. The women told us about the empty tomb, but we didn't see him. Now, I'm skipping over a few words. You can read the full uh, description there. But those are kind of the hinge points, his main points. We had hoped. Uh, We were told otherwise, but we didn't see him ourselves. So we're kind of heartbroken here. And in the middle of this failure of hope, Jesus breaks bread, opens the scriptures, and the two disciples, it describes them as seeing him. They, they see him who he was. Their hopes are redefined and reoriented. As a clear recapitulation then of the Lord's Supper and the command to take the bread and the cup there, Jesus redefines and reorients expectations through the bread, the cup, and the scriptures. And in the same way, we too, week in and week out, must recognize the opportunity the table provides for us to acknowledge our misplaced hopes, just as Cleopas did, acknowledge them before Jesus, and open ourselves to having our expectations redefined and reoriented. Cleopas spoke his misplaced hope, and Jesus, Jesus redefined it for him. We can see, hear, taste, and practice a hope defined by God's faithfulness and dependability through the bread and the cup. We can orient our expectations again on God's redemptive purposes. We can begin to take steps to trust God's timing more and more. And in this, God doesn't remove our expectations. It's not that we become emotionless or desireless. He doesn't remove them. He actually redefines and reorients them. Through his grace, through his means, he moves us closer to him. So then... In Advent, and not just in Advent, but in every season of life, we are invited to the table. You and I were invited. Let's accept this invitation. Let's embrace the hope at the table, hope that's sufficient for each and every day of our lives. Let's pray together. 
Father, you are present with us this morning and we are thankful. We are thankful that you offer us a path to true hope, that we don't have to rely on ourselves, our own abilities in discerning and determining what is best for our own lives. We are not strong enough or smart enough or wise enough or powerful enough to write our own story, to construct a hope sufficient enough to carry us through with the right expectations so that uh, when life comes at us, when we walk through different seasons, through different chapters of life, uh, we can't build our own hope on anything but you in a sufficient way that defines us and, and carries us through each season of life. So now as we head into Advent, as we reflect on godly expectation, an expectation that expects you to keep your promises and an expectation that expects a life of costly obedience. We humble ourselves before you. We confess our sins to you. And we ask you to move in us, shape us, to look more and more like your son, Jesus. 